Hey, I'm Tyler Fenwick, host of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feltman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Just search for Indiana 250 Off the Record. Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer, Senior Reporter, and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with IU McKinney Professor Cynthia Baker, Cynthia is the director of the Program on Law and State Government, which is hosting a symposium at the end of this month. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with managing editor Daniel Carson and reporter Alexa Schrake to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, September 20th, and these are your headlines. We'll start with you, Daniel, for an update on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. What's happening there? Indiana Northern District Magistrate Judge Joshua Kolar took a first step this month toward filling an Indiana vacancy on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Kolar appeared before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on September 6 and took questions from several senators during a hearing. President Joe Biden announced Kolar's nomination in July to fill the vacancy on the Seventh Circuit created by the death last summer of Judge Michael Kahn. Kolar has been a magistrate in the Indiana Northern District since 2019. Prior to taking the bench, he worked as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Indiana from 2007 to 2018, including serving as national security lead in that office from 2015 to 2018. Carl Tobias, a University of Richmond School of Law professor, says he thought Kolar did an excellent job in responding to senators on the committee showing his experience as a magistrate judge and displaying a solid judicial temperament. Tobias also says he thinks Kolar could expect a confirmation vote sooner rather than later, especially with the support of Indiana senior senator, Republican Todd Young. Tobias said he's cautiously optimistic Kolar will get a confirmation vote from the Senate in October or November. There are a handful of other federal judicial vacancies still open in Indiana, To learn more about those, check out my story in our September 13th issue. Thanks, Daniel. Staying on the federal side, Alexa, it looks like the Indiana Southern District Court has a new magistrate. What can you tell us? Crystal Wildman has been sworn in as magistrate judge for the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of Indiana this month. The court hosted a private swearing-in ceremony on September 1st with a formal investiture to be announced. Wildman is filling the vacancy created by Judge Matthew Brookman when he was elevated to district judge. She will maintain chambers at the court's Evansville division and travel to Indianapolis to hear cases. Prior to her appointment to the bench, Wildman had joined Barber and Bauer LLP as a partner in 2022, where she represented businesses and individuals in litigation in a variety of areas including employment, contract, personal injury, and insurance. Wildman also has extensive mediation experience and is a certified trained mediator. Thanks, Alexa. Also in the Southern District, two Hancock County school districts won summary judgment in a Title IX lawsuit last week. 
Eastern Hancock and Southern Hancock School Corporations were facing a lawsuit brought by a female student who alleges she was sexually assaulted as a 15-year-old freshman. The accused was previously a student at New Palestine High School in the Southern Hancock School District. There, he was accused of inappropriately touching a classmate. But an investigation didn't reveal conclusive evidence that his actions were intentional. When he transferred to Eastern Hancock, his disciplinary record was blank because the allegation wasn't verified. The plaintiff argued Southern Hancock violated Title IX by being deliberately indifferent to the student's harassment at New Palestine and by facilitating his transfer to Eastern Hancock. She alleged Eastern Hancock knew she was vulnerable to engaging with male students and still failed to step in. But a judge ruled Southern Hancock's action or inaction could not have interfered with the girl's access to the district's educational programs because she never attended school in the district. The judge also ruled Eastern Hancock's actions demonstrated it didn't learn of issues and do nothing. For example, at the request of the girl's mother, the school monitored the girl and another student who were apparently in a relationship. The student also brought state claims against the defendants, including the alleged perpetrator. The judge ordered the parties to show cause why the court shouldn't relinquish jurisdiction over those claims. Their deadline is Friday. Coming back to you, Daniel, there's a piece of legislation that would try to alleviate judicial shortages. What can you tell us? Bipartisan congressional legislation that could potentially ease workloads in some of the nation's most stressed federal courts, including Indiana's Southern District Court, has been revived by one Indiana senator and three of his colleagues. Senator Todd Young has reintroduced legislation to address judicial shortages by increasing the number of federal district judges in the most, quote, overworked, unquote, regions of the country, his office announced September 12th. Young introduced the legislation with Democratic Senators Chris Coons of Delaware and Alex Padilla of California, as well as Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. According to Young's office, the Judges Act, which was first introduced in 2020 and again in 2021, would act on findings from the 2023 Judicial Conference of the United States report that recommended 66 new permanent district court judgeships, including one in the Indiana Southern District Court. Based on national judicial caseload profile numbers for the 12-month period ending December 31, 2022, the Indiana Southern District's 645 weighted filings per judgeship placed the court first within the Seventh Circuit and seventh nationally in terms of caseloads. The legislation would create the judgeships after the next two presidential elections, half in 2025 and half in 2029. Thanks, Daniel. In litigation news, Alexa, I know you've been paying attention to a lawsuit against the city of Valparaiso. What's the latest there? Kathy Grawlick, the city of Valparaiso's human resources director, has amended her discrimination complaint against the city, its mayor, the former city administrator, and Organizational Development Solution, Inc., and its president. Garlic has added claims under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to her complaint against the city after receiving a Notice of Right to Sue letter from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Her lawsuit alleges gender discrimination, retaliation, and hostile work environment. Garlic filed her complaint last month alleging various federal and state claims, including violations of her constitutional rights arising from alleged gender discrimination, pay discrimination, harassment, retaliation, and defamation. She has worked for the city for more than 23 years and alleges she has experienced and observed various forms of gender-based discrimination and harassment, 
which the city has disregarded and has thwarted her efforts to fight against. Quote, I'm saddened the city has refused to make this right and address these issues, but I'm pleased that the EEOC has given us the go-ahead to move forward and force the city to treat women equally. We are prepared to see this go to trial, and I look forward to seeing this through to the end, Garlic said in a news release. Thanks, Alexa. Now moving to the state side, the Indiana Supreme Court is weighing how to interpret state law in a case involving an independent expenditure political action committee, otherwise known as a super PAC. Indiana Right to Life Victory Fund argued before the justices this month that the state's election laws won't allow it to accept donations from corporations or that there would be a cap on how much those corporations could donate. But Indiana's election officials say they don't intend to enforce the laws in that way and agree that doing so would be a violation of the First Amendment. Given that, Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush asked, quote, why are we here, end quote. Terre Haute attorney James Bob Jr. called the state's words, quote, empty promises, end quote. Kyle Hunter of the Indiana Attorney General's office said the state has a duty to defend the statute. The case was originally filed in federal court. The Indiana Southern District Court found the fund did not allege a credible threat and dismissed the lawsuit for lack of standing. The Seventh Circuit then ruled the state's high court is the only body that can definitively construe Indiana election laws and certified a question to the court. Hunter argued the disputed sections in state law only address contributions that are dispersed to candidates and political parties. He said the statute does not regulate independent expenditures. And now coming back to you, Alexa, we unfortunately have news of a former law school dean who died recently. What can you tell us? Former Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law Dean and IUPUI Chancellor Emeritus Gerald Jerry Bepko died on September 5th at 83. Bepko started as an associate professor at Indiana University School of Law, Indianapolis, now called IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law, in 1972, then worked his way up to becoming dean in 1981. Bepko was also the longest-serving chancellor of IUPUI. He served from 1986 to 2003, when he moved on to serve as interim president of Indiana University from January 1, 2003 to August 31, 2003. Bepko didn't always work in higher education. After graduating from Northern Illinois University and Chicago Kent College of Law, he joined the FBI. He investigated civil rights abuses and violence in the 1960s until he was involved in a traffic accident that left him seriously injured. He has several awards, achievements, and programs named after him, including the Bepco Scholars and Fellows Program and the Bepco Learning Center. He held honorary degrees from Indiana University, Purdue University, and Chicago Kent College of Law. He is also a two-time recipient of the Sagamore of the Wabash. A memorial service will be held for Bepco at 1 p.m. on October 14th at St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. His family has requested donations to be made in his memory to the Bepco Scholars and Fellows Program at IUPUI instead of flowers. Thanks, Alexa. To wrap up this week's headlines, I'm working on a story for our next print issue about the judicial retention process in Marion County. Some Marion Superior Court judges want a legislative change that would require incumbent judges to appear before the Marion County Judicial Selection Committee more than once. Currently, with the law passed in 2017, Incumbent judges only need to appear one time before the committee. The judges who want the change say it would promote transparency and accountability. You can read that story in our September 27th issue. 
Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, theindianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined here in our studio by IU McKinney professor Cynthia Baker. Cynthia is director of the Program on Law and State Government. The PLSG is hosting a symposium later this month. So thanks for joining me today, Cynthia. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So before we get into this year's symposium and what some students have been working on, can you tell me how the PLSG came about? You bet. Um, The idea was that of Norm Lefstein, who was the dean of the law school a long time ago. The law school's located in Indianapolis, and he had a vision of making the wealth of opportunities to work with and learn from the lawyers within the executive and legislative branches of Indiana state government available to the law students at the school. And before then, um, you know, if a law student knew somebody or who knew somebody or who had a parent who knew somebody, they could kind of do these one-off experiences. But um, his idea to perform to uh, establish the program in law and state government was to make this a regularly offered opportunity for law students. And since that time, this idea, which are called externships in the legal law school world, has been, in fact, required by the American Bar Association. So it's really become much more sophisticated than when I started so long ago as the founding director. Yeah, I was going to ask, I thought you were the founding director. I wanted to clarify that. When was that? That was 1997. I had to do math to figure this out, but I think it was like... 26 years ago. I'm glad you did the math because I was trying (laughs) to do it in my head really quick and I realized I was most definitely going to give a wrong answer. So since 1997, how have you seen it grow or maybe change over the years? Well, the two primary foundations for the program on loss and state government have stayed the same. One, as I mentioned, was to expand these opportunities uh, for law students to engage in externships. And the second is to provide more opportunities to explore the role of state governments in our system of federalism specifically. And so it's, but while those two things have stayed the same, it's changed in that now when I started, you know, I knew a handful of lawyers and started this process. I wasn't really familiar with the law school and how it worked and kind of built it relationship by relationship. Now there are probably over 150 lawyers in the network of attorneys who support the students and um, probably over 60 formalized legal externship opportunities for the students. And then the second um, effort to provide opportunities for serious scholarship to look at legal issues facing state governments has been primarily through this fellowship annual opportunity for law students that I think we're going to talk about later. And um, that has a that's a continuing educational program for our students that um, has just become, I think, more sophisticated as the years have gone by. The students have become more sophisticated, the technology, everything. 
Before we get to those fellows, I just want to make a quick observation that I don't think I've ever seen anybody come in for an interview here as prepared as you with all of these notes. If if these students are learning attention to detail from you, I, I think they're doing an okay job. I just wanted to tell you that. <laughs> it's a trait of a lawyer, I think. And so for the symposium this year, I know there's a lot going on, uh, but there are the two PLSG fellows who have done some research that they'll present on. What can you tell us about that? Well, the two fellows this year for 2023 are Ashley Rosenblatt and Forrest Manning. They're both upper-level law students who, in 2022, applied through an application process for this co-curricular activity. And unlike a law school class, it is for a calendar year beginning in January. And while the culmination is later this month, uh, it really lasts through November as we um, reflect on the fellowship year and the topic and the symposium event. Ashley brought significant political and corporate experience to law school before she began, and um, she's uh, won leadership awards and has participated in a lot of co-curricular activities at the law school, including moot court competition and um, bar association work. She's also a mom, and uh, her daughter has, well, I can't Namer as a former fellow is just probably an honorary fellow because she this little girl has brought so many uh, smiles and laughter to a pretty intense topic. Forrest Manning is the other fellow, and he's entered law school also with significant experience in local government in his hometown of Petersburg, Indiana. He served as an elected member of a school board and is appointed member of a development uh, corporation down there in Pike County, and. Um, He's also been active in a lot of programs at the law school, including the Second Chance Reentry Assistance Program, which advocates for individuals who are getting life started again after um, incarceration. And so together, these students, Ashley and Forrest, chose the topic for this year's fellowship year. Which centers on the term liberty, correct? Yes, And so what about liberty? And I I don't want to ask you to spoil anything ahead of the symposium, but I was so interested because that seems like a topic where there's a lot to discover. There certainly is. And I would say it's one of the most expansive, if not the most expansive topics tackled by the fellows. Another interesting thing about the fellowship year is after the fellows are selected, they collaborate to pick a single fellowship topic. Um, irrespective of their individual applications about their interest in the in the opportunity, the co-curricular opportunity. So state governments uh, are really in the spotlight, maybe, maybe not more than ever, but certainly more in the, than they have been in the past decades with the Dobbs decision that came down in September of 2020, I mean, in the summer of 2022, and just seeing how different states are responding to that decision of the Supreme Court that put the issue of abortion in the hands of state legislatures and the wide variety of ways that states have responded to this. So that kind of invited conversation about the topic, but the essence really is that liberty is a slippery, slippery topic. And when one aspect of humanity might feel like they've gained liberty, there's inevitably somebody who feels like they're losing liberty or an idea that's losing liberty. So we've had a lot to discuss since January. And 
each of the fellows have chosen one aspect, but they're also moderating panel discussions and um, introducing keynote speakers on other aspects of this um, confluence of the concept of liberty, how people use it to champion their own ideas. Because it sounds good in a vacuum, but when it's taking stuff away from you by the other side, it maybe doesn't sound so good. And how does law respond to that? And how, how should we as the legal profession really respond to these arguments? Can you give me an idea of, of your role in helping them develop this research and put everything together? Well, I often say it's their fellowship year. It's their fellowship topic. I am merely the faculty advisor. But as these conversations, first I get the conversation going and inevitably the first third of the calendar year is really kind of harnessing what they want the topic to be, what the big topic, what they want their own individual scholarship to encompass, and how to think about that through the lens of the law and the lens of what state governments can do and can't do. And so I'd say that's part of it. And then beginning in the late spring, early summer, to help them to understand the interdisciplinary nature of whatever their topic is, and to the extent possible, introduce them to policymakers, academicians, um, elected officials, and others in other disciplines, either on the IU campus here in Indianapolis or outside, to help them understand what they're wrestling with. Now, I might be projecting a little bit here, but I would see this as sort of two challenges where one is you're doing the research, putting all of that together. The other is now I got to present this. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not a great presenter, I don't think. Is that like a separate obstacle? Um, well, these are upper level law students, so they have usually uh, an interest in speaking their mind and putting their ideas into a logical presentation. It differs from a lot of law school work in that it is more interdisciplinary and and uh, their scholarship culminates with this presentation at a traditional scholarly symposium as opposed to a law review note or an essay on a law school exam. So it develops that skill set, I think, in a different way than it might be in other classes. But we, we practice. We practice. We make notes. And we practice in front of each other. And I invite, again, from this network of lawyers and faculty colleagues and people from our campus, people to listen to their presentations as we all get ready for the symposium. Now, I know you said this year's topic is one of the most expansive you've had, but uh, looking back, like, are there other favorite topics that fellows have studied? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think I could, it's hard to pick a favorite. And I think every year after it's over, I just think that was the best symposium ever. But I put them really into two categories. One, they're my favorite based on the pure intellectual depth of the topic. And for example, some of the topics uh, taken on by fellows include the integrity in public service. And that was, I don't know, maybe in the early 2000s. And, you know, whether 
local city councils have ethics codes, whether courts have ethics codes, whether, you know, there's an ethical code for general executive leaders at the local or state government level and how those are implemented. And that was just really interesting. And again, almost looking at the philosophy of ethics and then but did anybody really pass a law that was, you know, enforceable? Another really interesting, and I would think a favorite one of mine, looked at religious expression in the public sphere. Uh, I think that was at a time when here in Indiana, there was a question about how prayer in the Indiana General Assembly was being used or addressed or the scope of that uh, activity. And that spurred that particular topic. And that was just a really, I thought, interesting, intellectually worthwhile fellowship year and event. Uh, More recently, two fellows chose gun laws and gun violence as their topic. Again, pretty intense, very serious, but uh, the interdisciplinary nature, again, of what they explored, of, of the consequences of gun violence, not just homicide, but that in our community, and then again, different state approaches to that. That's so that's one category. And my second favorite category, it'd be based on kind of the prescience or foresight of these students to really have an impact on what's happening, not only here in other states, not only here in Indiana, but in other states. And um, incredibly, in 2018, the fellows chose the future of work. So we looked at technology and K through 12 education and higher education and how different states were preparing their residents for work. And uh, then, of course, in 2020, the pandemic began and we all, you and I have discussed before this podcast went on air, how work has changed and where we work has changed and how we work has changed so much since then. And I just really, um, I just, I think that's really cool to use a very erudite word to see how these (laughs) students, you know, were thinking about these things with regard to law and economic development before this huge thing way outside of the control of state governments would really change the future of work. But the topics they discussed and state government's responses to it were dead on. Another one um, early on was the internet's impact on state taxes and while that sounds maybe pretty blasé today, in 2000, the internet was pretty new and corporations did electronic commerce, but regular people didn't really buy too much on the internet. And just seeing, again, how that developed through states and their ability to impose sales tax on these things that you know, just has exploded in terms of the percentage of economic activity that happens without ever walking into a store, I think is pretty, pretty amazing. And the law, in fact, has changed since they addressed that topic. Now, what year was the future of work? 2018. Okay, what did you know back in 2018 about what the world was going to go through? Well, we didn't know about the pandemic, but uh, these two students really developed, again, looking at what different state governments were doing the the idea of what is higher education, what does that mean in terms of work, what is um, career and technical education at the K through 12 level, what does that mean in the future of work, how states were incentivizing 
those different programs through their K through 12 education. The idea of high school, what high school is, what you need to graduate, what should that be, um, were all the issues that really go through, at least mostly to our public education, through the legislatures and the 50 state governments. Now, I know there are lots of things happening at the symposium this year. So anything else in particular that you're looking forward to? Well, I'm most looking forward to hearing the fellows' presentations. I'm probably biased on that in that regard. And that's okay. Uh, and uh, Ashley is going to address um, ESG, environmental social governance, and different states' responses to that, which is, I think, something that we all need to educate ourselves on. And I'm really excited for her um, opportunity to take that to our legal community. And um, Forrest is going to discuss topics of liberty with regard to different ways of transportation and different modes of transportation. And so that's, I'm really looking forward to that. And then in addition to the panel discussions and other keynote speakers, we're going to try something new this year with a crystal ball session at the end where both fellows and the other symposium faculty are going to continue the conversation looking at 5, 10, 25 years from now what liberty might mean in the future. And, you know, I think like, you know, before 2020, we would never would have thought about the liberty of not wearing a mask or the liberty of not getting a vaccine. And so just to, just to kind of use our collective brain power and see what we can see in the future. And the symposium this year, I want to make sure I have this right for everybody listening, September 22nd, correct? That is correct. And how can you register to attend or learn more? If you go online to IU McKinney School of Law or the Program on Law and State Government, there's an online link to register. It's free, and um, I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting day. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again for joining me, Cynthia. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.